Big Fluff. I tried because I loved you. But the thing is, I'm not sweet, Estella. Try as I might. I never was. I'm cruel. Born brilliant. Born bad. And a little bit mad. Hey everybody, I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver linings. And it is our annual uh, May tradition celebrating each anniversary of the podcast that we let guests get revenge on us. And arguably never before in the history of this podcast have we owed a former guest one than we do to our current guests. Uh, so, so we are welcoming back to the podcast Sophie Strauss, uh, a stylist for regular people, because uh, we made her watch Blonde. Yeah. And yeah, I'm amazed she's still talking to us, frankly. I honestly couldn't think of a movie bad enough no, there to isn't. make you guys watch that wouldn't also, like, it seemed like a, I was like, what am I going to make you guys watch, like, The Love Guru? Like, Oof. what? Because then I would have to rewatch it, too, and that didn't seem fair. So I honestly think I probably have, like, six more of these before we get even, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah for minimum. sure. <laughs> yeah, so we watched uh, Cruella. Uh, as you heard from the opening, um, which is the uh, the origin story of Disney villain Cruella Deville, and yeah, that's that's where we're at. And this is um, what an interesting choice for a movie <laughs> from not, Sophie, not from, not from Sophie, okay. from me from or Disney, yeah, <laughs> from like uh, I, I I'm gonna come in hot maligning this movie oh. and say yeah. Uh, that just what a weird choice to choose arguably the Disney villain with the least likability or, you know, like the least like redeemable qualities. And let's make her the sympathetic lead to a movie. Just an odd place yeah. to come from. Yeah, I I actually I pulled a clip from the original 101 Dalmatians because I assumed this would come up. And I think this is a good refresher of the character that we are focusing on and doing a prequel about. This is the original version of the character. The anim the animated or the Glenn the animated. Plus? I've never okay. seen the live action. I haven't either. <laughs> yeah, but no, this is the animated like the 1960s. But yeah, so this is her as we were first introduced to her. I want the job done tonight. Are we gonna do it? Any way you like, poison them, drown them, bash them in the head. You got any chloroform? Not a drop. And no ether. Ether. Either. I don't care how you kill the little beast, but do it! And do it now! So that's our baseline. <laughs> that's our hero. That's yeah. the protagonist <laughs> that, of this movie. That's our hero. Yes. Well, I feel like, I mean, if I had to guess, right, you're looking at, like, a decision made from 
trying to mine existing beloved things that play to older people's by older people i mean like millennials but like older people's nostalgia but that you can put like a quote-unquote like feminist girl boss twist on that goes ooh, what right like it they did the maleficent like it's oh yeah you know well no it's i mean the the logic is obvious and for all the reasons you said it's ip like it's it's a property that they own that people know so that's that's enticing to disney of like we already own this and then also yeah this has worked for wicked for maleficent like this is a a template but it still is a strange fit for this character who's Name is essentially cruel devil and who only attributes that she has originally is smokes a sort of toxic cigarette, wears fur and murders puppies. Yeah, you know, I mean, if- the trifecta of goodness. <laughs> well, also, I mean, like Maleficent, her name is literally. Yeah. Evil. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's not. But I think sort of similarly to Maleficent, uh, one of the weakest parts of this movie, in my opinion, is that to make up for what is like such a hateful original sort of introduction to the character, they go so hard on making them sympathetic that it's like ridiculous. You know, you're it's like so much trauma and so much abuse that they have to go through to get there. And not in a way that's like, I think that's one of the things that I find myself wanting the most from this is like, I wish that she started off more complicated. I think that would be interesting. It's Disney. So like, what am I asking for? But, but she doesn't even, she gets like briefly a little complicated. And then like, that's really it. As opposed to somebody who's kind of just like, there's no other way to view this except that she was actually a good guy all along, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, it's Disney's not built for, like a an anti-hero nuance. well nuance, nuance for sure again that's why <laughs> cruella Deville was the starting name but uh but yeah it's like she she could be this anti-hero again i mean i love stuff like better call saul or something like that where it's like this is a person that you like who just can't get out of their own way and who always succumbs to their worst temptations which yeah maybe there's a, a version of cruella that could have been that of like like she really did try and and she wanted to be good. She wanted to be Estella, but she just found more rewards being this evil version of herself. The fashion world embraced the more evil sides of her and and that rewarded her financially and, you know, like fame wise. But that's Disney's not going to do that. It's like she's good. You like her. Dalmatians murdered her mom. <laughs> that's why I'm she it has up there. a grudge against the Dalmatians. <laughs> well, I think that's part of why I chose this movie um, because I will admit I really enjoyed this movie. This is the second time I watched it. It is long. It is, it is long, and, it is and long, I can yeah. I can unpack a lot of like what I think falls short, but I like cannot deny that I enjoyed I enjoyed it the first time and I enjoyed it the second time. But but what I think is is weird is like you have this character where it's like, you know, to your point, Joel, like if she was somebody who we sort of watch a regular human battle their way, even in the Disney version of this, battle their way through the sort of alluring rewards of like greed and just sort of like taking selfishness versus like 
the slower burn of being kind and patient and gentle with people. Um, but instead they like, they don't play that as a choice. They sort of play it as like, there are two wolves inside her. Yes. And you know, <laughs> the which, black wolf and the white wolf, <laughs> which wolf with it's like, it's like, she's there's the, her, her, the mother who raised her, who is good. And the mother who birthed her, who is bad. And she is like, equally both of these people, the black and the white of her hair and who will she choose? But, but they're like both, neither of, they're both nature sort of, right? right. Like, which is yeah. going to win as opposed to like, no, any person could, could fall prey to these kinds of like life choices. Right. Well, and the movie kind of makes the choice for her. That's the thing is like, she, obviously she chooses to, uh, you know, be Cruella in this public sense and and to have, make a name for herself in the fashion world. But it's like it, the movie itself is like, we will push you to be the villain. Like events are conspiring to make this happen, whether you want them to or not. Uh, but I will say all of that being said, and I know this is Revenge of the Guest Month, so I'm sorry to disappoint you after all we did to you. But I also did enjoy this movie. Like, I will say that. <laughs> And this I will was your that, first time watching. Both of you guys had not seen it. Before, no, I right? actually had seen it before. Oh. Uh, yeah, once before as well, because uh, my wife, Molly, is also a big fan of this movie. So we had watched it yeah. together before. So. Uh, I, I can say that I also enjoyed this movie. Um, <laughs> and I think that there is plenty to malign about it, but I think there's also a lot to really like about this movie. So. In some ways, it's perfect for the podcast, yes. and so yeah. <laughs> we definitely you def your our debt is not yet repaid. No, so not even close. Uh, it's it's nowhere. <laughs> you have not extracted your pound of flesh from us for this movie. Um, I just think, I mean, it is. Better Call Saul might be the only time in recent memory that they've done the origin of a villain that worked, and yes, yeah. I think because a little bit because Better Call Saul isn't a villain, um, because. Disney is is stuck in the trap of well we need a likable protagonist which better Saul, better call Saul is skewed from the jump and made it good as like but then we also need a villain to root against which a villain origin story didn't necessarily need like um I vehemently hate the movie The Joker but that was a right choice that they didn't have like a villain make worse than the Joker make the Joker. Which, by the um, way, I, I had forgotten to that until I was like reading stuff and re-familiarizing myself with the narrative around this movie, that that was a comparison that this got a lot, that it was like, this is Disney's The Joker. And it's right. I, I feel like that is super unfair to this movie. I just want to say because yeah, I liked this one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's also definitely tricky when you have what a lot of Disney movies had, which was female villains. Right. And then how do you make a female villain? And A, you're coming out of um, the original Disney material, which had to make their villains 100% evil. Right. Whereas like in something more nuanced, right, you get like, especially like not a kid's movie, you can get a villain who has pangs of things that are good in the original source material. You don't get that in Disney. So then when they try to tell the other side of it, there's like no other side. So you have to, you have to make it, you, you have to swing the pendulum hard in the other direction because you, the, the source material is so vicious. 
Well, and that well, was, and- yeah, I, I literally went back and I, I watched 101 Dalmatians like as well for this, for this episode. Oh, really? <laughs> I did just because I wanted to see it. And it's, there's nothing like there is no, like literally it's never even explained. It's just, this is a lady who wants 101 Dalmatians to make a coat. And that's yeah. it. She wants them dead. She wants them well, dead. That, we don't even know why. There's no motivation outside of they would make a she's good She's not coat. even a fashion designer, right? Like, no. we don't get that. We, we just, don't know what she is. She's Anita's classmate. That's the only personal information right. given about her. She's Anita's Even though it's weird in the original because she's Anita's she's classmate, like, but but she looks 40 like years older. Years yeah. older. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, those toxic cigarettes will get you. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you. They, they will age you up. Well, and that's the thing is like, Arguably, it's not until Beauty and the Beast where you have a Disney villain in Gaston who is the hero of his own story, even if he is still the villain of that movie. Like all the other villains are flat out evil. Yeah. Just nothing like whether it's Maleficent, whether it's the the Wicked Queen from Snow White, whether it's uh, Man from Bambi, no redeeming qualities. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which and, is and, the next you know, Disney Plus uh, prequel? So they're making they're making Man from Bambi as <laughs> <laughs> a sympathetic origin story. It turns out several deer killed his mom, so that yeah, was why yeah. <laughs> that uh, this man le- le- single handedly led a rebellion against the evil deer overlords <laughs> and subjugated them to the forest. Uh, and and now this is his one last chance at revenge. What I do think is interesting about. Cruella is like, I remember growing up, unlike Maleficent, where, for example, like that Halloween costume became very popular, I think. And I, it's not, I you can check me on this. Like, I, I don't have Halloween costume stats in front of me. I'm going off like my own personal experience here. But I don't really remember a lot of people dressing up like Maleficent for Halloween. She wasn't like a sort of go to, like, she wasn't a beloved villain. She was a true villain. Well, I don't and even think she, her name was super recognizable until no, her movie. No. She was the lady from. <laughs> she was just, yeah, yeah, I think she's maybe mentioned once. Yeah. And, but Cruella, like when I was growing up, I mean, like we, you know, people dressed up like her all the time. Part of it is she had such an easy to replicate mm-hmm. look, right? Yeah. You need like a long cigarette, some white and black spray paint and like a fake fur coat. And you kind of like, it was the go-to, like it was easy. person's Halloween costume. But Whereas also, Maleficent took some sewing, yeah. took some <laughs> so, stitch some work. architecture yeah. in, the, in the horns. But I think that in, that does speak to like, if we're gonna sort of talk about the other side of why this character, Corella was always obviously sort of fabulous. Like she's yes. horrible, but there's something about her. She's sort of funny. Like she has like quips, even in the original movie, she's sort of, you know, like, and, and so I think to to that extent, it, more than other Disney villains, there's something like she's sort of delightful in her wickedness. Yes. Um, so I could see why that would make her sort of like rich to to mine for an origin story um, because because she was kind of already beloved, you know, and people knew she did have name recognition. Right. Everybody knows. Cruella. Well, she literally Roger she writes a, a song. song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. And, and that's the thing is I would have while we're still mining, I think I would have rather just seen a movie where the fashion world chews her up and spits her out and breaks her and makes her evil than her getting revenge on the mother who never loved her and, and sick Dalmatians on her adopted mother. Totally. uh, That movie's way too nuanced for the target audience, but 
Is it? Because I, I actually think we're the target. Like, I think we're the target audience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> well, well, it's but, the parents of kids. It's the kids that have parents who loved right. the, the classic Disney. Although, no, I now I kind of wonder if so. If a kid now, if they watched this movie first and then wanted to go watch 101 Dalmatians, what would they make of it? I wonder. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I also, if we're going to malign the movie a little bit, which we have to start with, it is, shall we say, exposition heavy. Yes. Well, and you can, <laughs> even in that opening clip, I mean, it's everything will be stated, you know. The... <laughs> like, like really, like so beyond what's necessary. And it's, and it's also like, plot heavy in yes. a weird way like um but but it's 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 almost like little plot little plot little plot little plot in a way that moves fast enough that like i'm on the ride but you are watching it and you're like oh my god like we this could have had like three less full story arcs right removed and still been like a movie that works yes well like roger doesn't need to be in this you know like for no. starters of just like I get that you're trying to hit all the characters from 101 right. Dalmatians. You want to at least name check the the big ones. Versus yeah. like, again, Anita, one of the only things that we know about Cruella DeVille, she went to school with Anita. So Anita should be there if she's a kid. Sure. Yeah. You know, and then it, they, I thought they integrated her actually very well with like, she's a reporter. She's reporting on the fashion world. Perfect. Yeah. There is something very funny to me. You know, it, part of why I chose this as a, as a stylist, right, is it is one of the rare movies, like, that's really actually about fashion mm -hmm. and has fashion and fashion design at its center. Um, but it also does this thing that, like, Emily in Paris also does. I don't know if you guys have watched any of Emily in Paris. I haven't. I'm aware that it exists. It exists. It's, <laughs> it's been on near me while my wife has watched it. So the thing that is funny to me is, like, and I meant to do research on this before this, but I, I honestly don't think it's really, like, famously a thing, is Cruella and Emily in Paris both treat the fashion industry like it is a normal battleground for like flashy PR stunt rivalries. Like Emily in Paris also has a storyline where like two battling designers are kind of like constantly showing up at each other's things to upstage each other in this sort of like fashion beef. And it also talks about actual fashion shows, like the collections themselves as these like really like um, meaningful to the broader public, which is like a fun universe to live in. Um, and I'm not really one to be like, it's not, that's not really how the fashion industry is. It's just so funny that like every like fictionalized fashion industry piece of television or film, they tend to try to make it um, like, like sort of t create tension or drama by having it be something where like a designer has a rival who's going to pop up at their show. Like I've just, I've seen this like weirdly in more things than you would think. And it works in this more than in Emily in Paris because it's like, she's not actually trying to beat her in fashion. She's trying to like psychologically torture her mother who abandoned her and killed her own mother. Um, in Emily in Paris, it's just like, he's trying to, steal your style but but still it's like the coverage is so sort of hilarious um and ridiculous yeah 
Yeah. I, I kind of want someone who is not an expert of the fashion industry. Sure. Yeah. That sounds right. I mean, I, I'm disappointed. I think you've spoiled this for me because I know nothing about the fashion industry. So now that I know that's not how it works, I'm kind of sad. I know. I know. I assumed it was all WWE style rivalries yeah. and, and, and giant set pieces and cutting promos on each other. And that's what I figured it was. To know it's not. Um, yeah, it's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, that. Uh, I guess that makes sense why the mousiest girl I knew in high school went on to be a fashion designer. And like, I think that all tracks. That's really the other thing, too, is like most fashion designers. I mean, you know, uh, as we're recording this, it's the Met Gala honoring Karl Lagerfeld, a, a maligned figure himself, <laughs> rightfully so. Um, sure. Uh, like he's probably one of the most like in recent memory, sort of consistently outwardly fabulous designers where like he would always kind of have like a really fabulous look, but like half, like the sort of joke, right? It's like half of fashion is like, it's not about them. Like it is, right. they're all egomaniacs in their own ways, but they don't put themselves usually quite so centrally in their, in their stuff, but it's, it's still delightful. And I think perhaps that, you know, might, and I don't want to segue us too soon, but like, boy, does this uh, rest on the acting chops of the phenomenal cast? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I have like one small thing I'd like to mention, but then I would Please. be good to pivot. I don't know if anyone else has anything else. I, I, if it's different from yours, I have one, too. Okay. I can't wait. Uh, I, I just want to say in general, like, I mean, we've talked a lot about the, the concept of this and it being a prequel, but I, I'm not getting out of this part without talking about just how head scratchingly baffling I found the post credit scene to be because like this implicate so it ends that she's in the house and she's taken over and she's like I have some ideas and then it's like but then they show Roger and Anita and they each get Pongo and I can't think of the other Perdita Perdita they get their Dalmatians that are gonna meet up and have but it but it's like so and they're each... from the same litter mind you that are from their brother and sister first of all and then second of all uh they have these cards that say like that they're from Cruella and I watched that and I was like what <laughs> so the implication of this is that their chance meeting in the original film and the fact that they have these 15 puppies was somehow machiavellianly like conceived by Cruella <laughs> Well, do we know if there's like any plan for a, like a? I think there. No, I think there's already been a greenlit follow-up for Cruella to Deviller. If it's not called Tuella, then they should cancel it. <laughs> well, wait, sorry, but Andy, before we get there, just be while we're talking about maligned Dalmatian moments, <laughs> I was very reluctant to watch this movie in the first place because I think the trailer. Somebody on Twitter, I remember, posted the clip of like the Dalmatian, the vicious Dalmatians that we see in the very beginning, right? Pushing her mother off the cliff. And that's all I saw. And people were like, wait, are you shitting me? The origin story is that like mean Dalmatians killed her mom. And I was like, are, this is so insane. But I, then in, in hindsight, like this doesn't really do that. Like it doesn't, she never has an issue with Dalmatians. No, and she she has those Dalmatians at the end. Yeah. So, but it. I also I kind of silver line it because I think it's objectively hilarious that they made that choice. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah. So funny. Uh, yeah. I, I not guess in the way they intended. I I do think maybe it's worth mentioning that the CGI is not great on no. those Dalmatians. No. No. 
Yeah. Or the other dogs. Well, yeah, just in general. Any any animal that is CGI in this is not not the best work. Uh, but Andy, yeah, did you have a different thing? Or? So this and maybe this is the decent point to pivot because I think this falls somewhere. It's almost a backhanded compliment. Um, <laughs> I think this movie has an outstanding soundtrack. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But holy shit, did they pick the most on the nose song for oh every scene? It was every- this is from this is the Martin Scorsese departed level of subtle subtlety and uh, and, uh, you know, illusion. It's just ugh. I mean, how much I mean, it was also it's, it is one of those sound like soundtracks that like you you turn to whoever you're with and you're like, boy, was that expensive? Like, oh, yeah. The budget for the soundtrack must have been astronomical because it's it all ate into the CGI budget budget. Yeah, that's why I think the dogs didn't look better because they did nothing but hits like all just bangers, you know, for for 20 seconds at a time. We're going to play the most recognizable music possible. But then they had Emma Stone sing a cover of I Want to Be Your Dog by Iggy and the Stooges. Just fantastic. <laughs> Which, great. Like, that scene, if we're talking about just scenes on their own, no notes. Yeah. But, no, every every song in this movie is the most obvious. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it, I, I don't have an example at my fingertips, but. Well, they literally play Sympathy for the Devil in the final yeah. shot when she yeah. has her, her, you know palatial estate and everything yeah right as just one example but yeah i think we can pivot yeah what wow. a cast man what a cast yeah what I, a cast. and emma stone the work that she's doing in particular because one i like the voice i mean i played both of them i played the way she's doing it in sort of the original and it's it's not an impression but you can see what she's going like it evokes something about that voice which is iconic she is having a ball. She's larger than life. Every choice that she makes is fantastic. And this movie does not work without her at the center. And she's phenomenal. Agreed. Yeah. No, uh, Emma Stone's awesome. Yeah. And, and the other, I mean, Emma Thompson, I think is like sensational. Like there's just these little moments where, you know, um, like, uh, you know, she's so upset before her final show and she throws the chair at like the woman working. And then she says, you were in the way. Yeah. But she's having such a difficult time. And like, I could, like there was part of it, honestly, is, is going back to like, I think some of right, the greatest weakness of this movie is probably some of the writing. Yeah. I might say. Yeah. And like so much more of it works than has any right to because of the delivery and performance by our Emma's like, yes, you know, it it just that her delivery of that, like you were in the way could have been so cartoonish. And instead it's like, Oh, you're like looking at a woman on the verge of a total breakdown. Yeah. I would say my two favorite Emma Thompson moments in this movie is when uh, Mark strong says, well, surely I didn't assume you wanted me to murder your only daughter. And her response without missing a beat is, and here I thought you knew me. <laughs> so good. Yes. And then um, like when she looks up at the final ball and sees everybody dressed like Cruella and like it's like this imperceptible. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's like it's so good. And I, it's it's yeah. Emma Thompson's awesome. Hot take. Emma yeah. Thompson. Pretty good at acting. Yeah. Good at acting. I do. Yeah, I have one other hot take. I have one other moment that's kind of similar to the one Sophie mentioned, but it's a really good one, too, which is when 
uh, Estella is showing off her design, she's actually bleeding. And like she grabs her arm and shows it to her people to be like, yes. this is the color red that I that want, I want. <laughs> which I, I was want. I loved that so much. Yeah, I, I also think that one of the things as somebody who very much cannot act, I find the most impressive when people are acting is like you have two characters who are lying to each other a lot and who know things about the other one that the other one doesn't know that they know. And both of them, but I think particularly Emma Thompson, there's like these really subtle face and tonal shifts that aren't just the obvious, like I'm playing somebody who's lying. So I'm going like this or whatever is like, there's just like the where, or where she has to hide her real feeling and deliver something that's, that's, you know, and she's so good at giving you both. And I just like it, I thought it was sensational. And, And that's like what makes, I think watching the two of them makes it so fun to watch. Yeah. Oh, and I, one of the other great moments too with her is at the very end, where she shoves her off the cliff, but then realizes that everyone has seen it. And it is just, again, you kind of see it in her eyes. It's a really good performance of she's kind of like, oh, fuck. Like they all saw that. Totally. But, but then immediately it's like, just like she fell like she jumped. She jumped. She like jumped. You she all tried saw to take it. me with her. Yeah. She tried to take like you see the real time, both panic, but also trying to get control of the situation. And I thought that that was a really good performance as well. Totally. I mean, you know, and I think this movie deserves like what this movie kind of is at its core is like a heist movie. It is. Yeah. Right. Like over, over and over again, even though like the heist is like, you know, ultimately the who has power of the. Well, it's a big old grift. The whole movie is just a big old grift. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, by the way, I do want to give a shout out to Paul Walter Hauser, who plays uh, he's Horace. Right. Um, Yeah. And just. The absolute cartoon performance in this movie, but I enjoyed him. I enjoy him so much anyway. I always but, enjoy him. We, yeah. My husband and I were at the uh, at MoMA in New York and uh, we're like getting we were, I guess, Paul Walter Hauser famously like pretty religious. Oh, is he? And, yeah, apparently. But like in like a kind of like cool, like chill Jesus guy kind of way. And I am Jewish. My husband is not religious, but he his his mother was Polish. And the way that sh- they remembered the sort of um, the in her last name, Radijak, they would remember the J, C, Z order of the many consonants in her last name was the nuns when she was growing up. because She had been sent to the convent, told her to think of Jesus Christ zebra. And so, <laughs> so my husband has both a tattoo of a zebra as Jesus Christ Amazing. and then a hat he got made that says Jesus Christ zebra. And that's awesome. We, we were walking out of MoMA and Paul Walter Hauser was walking in with like his partner or girlfriend or whatever. And he stops my husband and he goes, I love your hat, man. And my husband's like, oh, thanks. And like, we both recognize him because we watched, uh, what was the like uh, boxing show he was in that he was so good in? Um, Kingdom? I don't I don't know. Anyway, he's great. He's, he's great in it. And so we both like immediately recognized him. And my husband was like, oh, thanks, man. And he goes, I'm just like a big fan of Jesus. And then like kind of snapped and like <laughs> went into the moment. And we were like, that was perfect. Amazing. That's exactly the interaction with Paul Walter Hauser that you want. Exactly. Um, no, he man, Tuck, I give that dude so much credit for finding his niche as an actor and just making sure he gets every role that's needed for like 
uh, a fake self-assured doofus because yeah. man does he nail it every yeah. single time but yeah all of the and stuff he's where awesome. he's trying to convince them that he's an exterminator and the dog is dressed up like a giant rat just fantastic material delightful like, yeah, yeah. And he does um, an excellent Brett Goldstein impression with his voice in this movie. Like, you know what's funny? I actually read that he was trying to sound like uh, Shmee in. Uh, yeah, Hook. that's what I'd heard. That he based it on on Smee from uh, the original, or from Bob Hoskins. Smee, I think. Yeah, it was Hook Bob Hoskins. Yeah, he's he's doing an impression of Bob Hoskins from Hook. And yeah. he ended up with with uh, Roy Kent from Ted Lasso. I think either way it works, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no notes again. Yeah. Um, no, Paul Alderhauser like. Yeah, good on that dude. Yeah, no, he's, and, and he's fun in the movie. Yeah, he really is. And then Mark Strong, one of my all-time faves. Mark like, Strong, I think, can do uh, no wrong. My husband is came in yesterday and goes, "Oh, rugged buff Stanley Tucci." <laughs> <laughs> it could have been that. I find it interesting too that, like, I think what I like about Mark Strong in this movie is, and I think even in movies we've watched on this podcast, Mark Strong is normally a guy that is around who turns out to be the villain and it's usually very obvious you're like well of course he's going to be the villain like look at it and i like that this is a movie where you think that he's the villain and the twist is that he's actually a good person and i i think i did enjoy that but who's also a villain come actual 101 dalmatian well right (laughs) yeah i do feel like for how much room they gave to like any tiny little plot point we could have used just like a minute more on why he turned like i get that sort of like that you know i think child murder was yeah why he turned. But, but but it was like but but that should have been like then he did nothing until she showed back up like you know sort of like what what has he been harboring like what is the has maybe he he hopes that her? she would never show up again. And maybe that was the, the hope that he'd never have to cross that bridge again. But I don't know. Uh, and I, uh, I hate to use. Yeah, I don't know. No, go I hate it. to use this terminology describing Mark Strong because uh, <laughs> I think that the terms are nonsense. But I don't know of an actor that can play alpha and beta better than Mark Strong. Like he can be like the heavy, but he can also be sort of the obsequious, like second in command sidekick person. And there there aren't many people that can do both to that degree and he's I, i'm a big fan well i think that's what he and gives those parts hector where elizondo oh hector elizondo okay yeah i stand corrected <laughs> who to me is the mark strong blueprint yeah he's 90s television mark strong <laughs> yes but i think he has more immediate like you watch him and you're like oh this guy's gonna turn out to be a softie because he has that kind of soft rough voice yeah yeah well i think that's the thing is that that hector elizondo is the guy that is like initially seems foul, but ends up being fair. Whereas the Mark strong more like seems fair, but ends up being foul. Right. Yeah. And they're sort of, they're, they're mirror image of each other and they should play uh, a buddy cop movie together. <laughs> Called fair and foul. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they're, they're baseball umpires uh, going undercover. <laughs> yeah. Obviously <laughs> to deal with uh, some like cheating scandal in major league baseball. Yeah. Two um... golden pitches this, this week already. <laughs> Um, am I allowed to pivot us towards the costumes? I was waiting. I've this yeah, whole I episode. Mean, I've assumed that at some point you were gonna yeah. take the reins. What, did this movie have like an interesting costume budget? I can't remember. Like, was there was that a center central focus or? Uh, it, like, I think it was literally like, next to only like the Sex in the City movies in yeah. terms of like yeah. sort of number of costume changes and stuff like that. Where it was like 
I think there was like 47 looks for Emma Stone's character alone. Um, so the costumes were by Jenny Bevan. She is like one of the industry greats. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, Room with a View. Um, and uh, she won the Oscar for this. She won the Oscar for both of those as well. She's been nominated 11 times. Um, she's like a real character. And uh, just, I mean, like, I don't know how much of her background is like relevant to this, but what I do think is sort of interesting is she, her background is not in fashion. And she like, if anytime you like read anything with her, or, like hear her talk, you know, or read an interview or listen to an interview, she talks about how she does not like fashion and she doesn't really know anything about fashion. And like, she doesn't pay attention to fashion. Um, she was like a set decorator, um, you know, sort of like production design and came up doing that. And um, you know, sort of had like a pivot when she was young, you know, in the sort of English like television and and stage, you know, world and just kind of stuck with it. Um, but I think that's interesting for a movie like this, because this is like this isn't just dressing characters. It's you're 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 trying to emulate the fashion world, but in a very Disney way. Um, but I mean, I just think she did. I think she did a sensational job, especially for something that is. A, a Disney movie. So it's like everything is a little cartoonish in ways that it kind of has to be. Um, but like B, she really like, you know, it is storytelling. And, and for somebody who sort of claims to not know a lot about fashion, the particularly like this movie is very English in ways that I think are unusual, where like I think a lot of Disney movies sort of try to place you anywhere. Like this movie really is like, no, we're in London. The design references are super clear. It's, I mean, the three that come to mind are Vivian Westwood, who I think was probably her like number one inspiration for this, Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, all three of whom are or were English uh, designers. And, um, you know, it's so, so, so I found that sort of interesting. Um, I mean, I'm curious sort of from your guys's like if, you know, and, and forgive me, but like being non-fashion people, I think it has to read for you guys. So like, does it come through for you? Like, how do you experience the fashion? Well, as like Andy was pointing out when he was talking about when you were saying of the, the rivalry stuff, I think the WWE theatrics of the, the costuming, like <laughs> particularly the the dumpster, which I think is my favorite thing, where it's like she shows up, her dress is made of trash, you know, and it has this long uh, train on it and she like literally rides off on the the garbage truck like stuff like that that it's again I yeah I, I couldn't tell you as you just did like who that's if that's influenced by a designer or anything but just as a storytelling moment she's upstaging the woman that she's trying to upstage it's a big theatrical thing I understand why that would play big and it looked cool right and my understanding is almost all of those costume influence set pieces were written like that was in the script and, but, but she had to execute them. Um, but you know, there's more than one way to skin that cat, right? Like that could have gone any number of directions. I think the thing that comes to mind for me in terms of like that line where it goes from like a brilliant moment in this, like in sort of how this was written to like, okay, no, but without Jenny Bevan and sort of her team actually executing this, it it's nowhere close is the moth, cocoon dress yeah. which i have no doubt was written that way right but like i don't know if you guys have this feeling when you watch it 
But like when that dress gets revealed, um, not not in the vault, but the when she finishes, quote unquote, beating it and, and Emma Thompson sees it and basically goes, I've done it again. Um, uh, like I like it takes my breath away. Like it's a legitimately spectacular and interesting dress that I have not seen. And like it's referencing, you know, whatever the shape of it is very specific and all that. But like. And some of it is CGI, certainly, right, or or all of it. But somebody had to come up with it. Right. And my assumption is that that is, you know, Jenny Bevan and her team. And and it's like sort of an undeniably, it's sort of like when you have a movie about music where you're like, fuck, all the music that we write for this has to like actually be good, or a movie about an artist where it's not just like Picasso and they're just getting copies, but they have to sort of convince you, no, this is somebody who is talented. That's a hard thing to do. And that dress, I think almost more than any other piece in the movie was like actually breathtaking. Yeah. And I, I think they did a good job too with uh, to your point too, of like, again, it's written, but then you have to sell this of that. The way that that dress is revealed is that she pitched other dresses and they're kind of doing this con to us, the audience where they're, you know, playing with us, but it's presented as something she's working on, on her own time on her lunch break and it gets taken, but it does, at least to me, like it did as well read as better than the other things that she had presented. So like, I did get that visually. I think that's super difficult to do is like to sell um, nuances of good and bad design, right? Because we never see anything ugly, like genuinely, right? We never see, I mean, obviously like everybody has their own personal taste, but we're not seeing anything from anybody that is um, sort of like actually bad, like objectively bad. So they're relying on nuances of style or construction or or sort of beautifulness, beauty. I guess one might say. Um, <laughs> I think it's. I think the word's beautifulness. I, yeah. Yeah. I think. Sorry. That was sorry. My bad. Um, <laughs> But uh, that are going to be like legible to everybody. And I and but they do it. They get away with it pretty with with some real subtlety. And I think that's that's a real like triumph. I think that's the crazy part is that if you were to think of a word to describe this movie, subtle would not be on that (laughs) list. Right. Uh, That's not the first thing that comes to mind. But the fact that. Like and I think I'm granted, I am no expert in the world of high fashion, but. The degree of difference between this is the next big thing in fashion and this is terrible and ugly is probably imperceptible to most schmoes walking the streets that like, oh, this is this is the new design. This is the new shape. This is the new pattern, whatever, you know, that most people wouldn't be able to tell why this is the amazing thing. And this is how dare you bring that across my stage and how dare you dress a model in that on the catwalk. And I think that's something that the movie gets at is that like all the designs that Emma Thompson is rejecting, like the none of them are like those absurd, like when people make fun of high fashion, like in a Zoolander style, uh, there's no outfits like that that are just getting, you know, like just so ridiculous and over the top the way people uh, like typically make fun of like the high fashion world. It's just these like they're very they're beautiful dresses, they're beautiful outfits. Uh, but she's like, oh, no, but that's that's not good enough. You know, and just. With just all of the just vitriol and like and none of the emotion. And again, going back to how great Emma Thompson is in doing that, is that she's like at a two the entire movie, but it's like the perfect choice. The most yeah. painful two. 
Yeah. Oh, uh, one one other thing I do want to give the sort of costumes credit for as well is that I mean, I think Emma Thompson or Emma Stone like sells it pretty well, but there isn't the Estella Cruella divide in characters is thin. Like it's <laughs> it's you know, like you're kind of it's like it's it's a Christopher Reeve Superman level of the glasses come off and therefore no right. one can tell. But I think the costumes do a really good job selling. Like, I think both this and Emma, the the fact that Emma Thompson probably doesn't look her employees in the eye or pay much attention to them helps as well. But I right. think like Estella's look is like very different from the way that Cruella looks. And I do think that that probably did more than most of the the rest of this movie to sell the idea that they were two different people then, you know, like it, it did work that even if you had it muted, if you looked at the screen, you knew which character, like which version of herself she was based on how she was dressed, her hair as well. But like the glasses, the like the styling, all of that, like really sold. This is a Stella. Right. I think the other thing that is interesting is the choice to set it in the 70s. Um. You know, I think technically it depends on which movie you think is it's supposed to be a like sequel. I'm sorry, a prequel to. So if it's a if it's a prequel to the animated sort of movie, which is based on a book that came out in like the 50s for kids, um, then this should have been set in like the 40s or 50s. Um, and so then I guess it's like, OK, is this a prequel to the Glenn Close live action one that like, I think I, I also haven't seen that, but like was came out, I think in the nineties, but like, I think was, was it also set in the nineties or was it set in the fifties or sixties? Like the original. So regardless, I think they had some wiggle room in terms of like what era they chose to set this in. And I think the choice to do it in the seventies is really because of the fashion. Yeah, it's because of the sort of right, like the counterculture, the punk well, that, movement of the, the 70s. whole mod revival, and like there's all those little bits and and again, the David Bowie clone. That character is yeah. great. Yeah, we haven't talked oh, about that awesome. character, Art but Artie. yeah, that character yeah. is yeah. really fantastic. Yeah, and and the 70s is when Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren opened their sort of ever changing shop on Kings Road, which you know I think landed at the title Sex for a long time, but I think like. One of the things that I that that is hard to land is like watching this and and we see Cruella sort of with all of these quote unquote like revolutionary counterculture designs from a 2023 lens. You're like, oh, you mean like something that's super played out and like not that interesting? Like, even if you can appreciate the construction or that it's sort of you're like, it doesn't land, I think, for us as that revolutionary because it's all been done already like they're not you know maybe except like the beat the moth dress or something like that some of the technological the the light of match in your robe disappears like the the impossible you that off from the hunger games <laughs> <laughs> um but you know that's that i think is one of the parts where the the sort of fashion is a little bit tricky because i think we're supposed to be equally in awe of the sort of edginess of her designs in comparison to the baroness um and 
I think that they managed to like tell that story well um, in sort of how they dress and, and their designs. But it is tricky because it's like, you, it's hard for us, I think, to conceive of just how revolutionary that kind of style was at the time. And some of it doesn't land, I think, because they don't hit that it's in the 70s that hard. You know, like it's it's like there, but it's the Disney there where it's like, but also this could be any time, any place. Right. Yeah. Where, no. Well, um, and I think that's the thing that it does well is that like all the characters in the movie like buy into how amazing the designs are and how revolutionary. And the weird, the surprising thing is that you never have Emma Thompson character being like oh well that'll never work it's the classics that have to go that have to be the model like they never like again surprising that they don't be that you know on the nose the way everything else could be but yeah this this is again we owe you still so much because <laughs> <laughs> this this is this is an enjoyable movie it's, it's a really, it is. Yeah it's, yeah, it's an easy watch, even though it's it's a, a touch on the long side, but... But it doesn't like, feel long. I will give it that. No. That, yeah. Um, but it, it's, you know, like, again, one of the tests that we often put our movies against here is, uh, if it's on folding laundry, would you be annoyed by it? And no, <laughs> I don't think it would be. I think it'd be like, oh, this is a good, this is like, have it on, you know, there's a bunch of cool set pieces, like, oh, I'll watch for a minute, I'll turn away. There's no big plot point that they're not going to explain to me again in eight minutes right. uh, that I've missed. Um, it's it's an easy watch, and like the acting is fantastic, arguably better than the acting deserves. And then the only other point I want to make about the fashion design is the difference between Academy Award winning fashion and other Disney fashion. Is like if you think about the Disney Channel show The Descendants, where it's like all the kids of the Disney villains, like. Man, is that fashion just over the top and bad and ridiculous. <laughs> like, it's just way too much. And this is exactly the right amount of much in, in Cruella. It's like the perfect amount of much. where And like everything like makes sense and feels real. Um, <clears throat> and that's that's why you get Academy Awards. Yeah, I, where it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a costume. I also, right. I mean, Sophie, you said you don't have your stats on Halloween costumes in front of you, but I would love, like, I could see a lot of these outfits, like a lot of Emma Stone stuff being things that people dressed up as. So this movie actually did, Jenny Bevan specifically, uh, sort of sh coming off of Cruella, um, sort of shined a light on a massive issue actually in Hollywood, which is one of the number one, if we're sort of talking about underappreciated, like behind the scenes roles in filmmaking and TV, it is the costume design. And uh, to, to a degree where oftentimes the clothes are more evocative of the film than like seeing a picture of the actor or anything like that. You know, when you, when you see uh, the white billowing dress to, you know, reference our our past podcast episode of blonde right you think of Marilyn Monroe right when you when yeah, right. you like when you think of any any of what anybody on Star Wars like and really truly like it's the costumes and the other thing is those are the money makers for companies like Disney for any of these big places is that that is a licensable design obviously it gets knocked off and ripped off and we see that and can laugh about that at like you know the spirit Halloween versions of it but like that is, you know, dolls that are wearing those mm -hmm. clothes, right? What makes yeah. those dolls the character and not just a doll? It's the clothes. It's mm -hmm. what they're wearing. And very, very rarely do the costume designers who invented that design get a penny 
from the sales of dolls or costumes or whatever. Every once in a while, like somebody like Janie Bryant, who did Mad Men, who I will always sing her praises because she's a genius. Like she did um, like an actual like capsule collection. I think it was with Banana Republic where like that is something where she is doing a partnership as Janie Bryant. It's not Mad Men the show by like we're doing costumes. Who's Janie Bryant? But there was a controversy coming off of Cruella. I believe it was about costumes or or a potential sort of like clothing line Disney partnership on the back of how sort of fabulous the costumes were from Cruella. And Jenny Bevan was sort of like, this is a huge issue. You know, um, the costume designer from Clueless, right? Think about, you know, Cher and Dion's plaid matching outfits. That wasn't like, I don't think that was necessarily scripted. And if it was, it didn't come to life until a costume designer created it. And those costumes have been made, those dolls have been sold and the costume designer doesn't see a penny. And so um, I think it's interesting that that so many films and, and television shows, what, what somebody wears is what the viewer can take home with them and, and sort of bring into their own life. And it's one of the like things that, you know, that person who actually did the work of creating that intellectual property doesn't get to touch. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, that, and that's the other thing is like, all of the costume design in this movie is great. Like even the people whose outfits aren't supposed to stand out, like Horace and Jasper have uniforms and they're yeah. very clear. And like, you know, and it's, you know, they sort of create those lights up characters that granted the actors and body and everything too, but like the outfit is part of it. And, um, you know, it's usually the showier stuff that gets noticed, but I'm sure that when the, cause like, uh, best costume design is a, is an award that's voted on by costume designers. Like they, choose amongst their own and so they're looking at like all the little bits and like how lived in everything looks like the uh the most recent uh is the second time that uh the designer for wakanda forever won like every stitch in that movie is so impeccably planned and so impeccably detailed and like you can see that in this is that like the background extras in mod clothing in the 70s are like perfect and you know just like every uh you know, Kayvon Novak as Roger's suit is like impeccable and like all those little things uh, like it, the attention to detail was probably a lot more than Disney expected or counted on. Right. Uh, and, and apparently but, she had almost no time. So like she did this really quickly as well for, for something of this size. And I think, is, yeah. you know, the attention to detail thing brings up something that I think as a viewer, you never notice consciously. But one of the biggest things with costume design that I think communicates character is okay you have something set in the 70s well is everybody dressing like it's the 70s because that's not what happens in real life and i right. think you have that with the difference between emma stone and emma thompson where emma thompson's silhouettes while they're sort of artful and timeless in in how sort of out there they are are very much drawing from like the 50s and 60s and she is not in the 70s and that you know um, again, like I know Janie Bryant did that a lot on shows like Mad Men or right. Who is the character who would be wearing clothes from 10 years ago because she hasn't moved out of that point in her life. And who's the character who has, who went shopping this year. Right. And that's not something that we're ever going to sort of think about as we're watching it, but it communicates something to you when you're sort of understanding where these characters are at in their lives. Yeah. And it's, it's the stuff that becomes even more important, the more, international film becomes because the the more that the visual part of it becomes important if it's playing somewhere where people might not know the language or anything else what they're seeing is the characters and they're getting the story from the way they look more than you know like no it's 
it, like a lot of Hollywood, it's something that's underappreciated. It's not thought about. And yeah, 100% the people that make those looks. Like, and if you don't think the people who make the looks are doing the hard work and should get the money, look at a pop figure. Because if you recognize what that pop figure is, it's the costume designer. Because it's they're all the Everything same. Everything else is the same shape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Watch one of the like making of documentaries about the uh, the clothing in Lord of the Rings to find out that people are doing the hard work. Right. Oh my god. Um, I I had one real quick thing, like a silver lining that I did want to mention that didn't come up uh, before this, but it's it's kind of an Easter egg in the movie, but I really loved it, which I don't know if you both know this, but the the original Cruella from the animated film is based on the actress yeah. Tallulah Bankhead, and there's a moment, and it's very quick, where uh, Emma Stone has the TV on and it's a clip of Tallulah Bankhead from the Alfred Hitchcock movie Shipwreck is just playing in the background and it's her laughing and I did actually pull the laugh because the laugh is amazing which is this <laughs> which also the laugh is just great in and of itself but it's like it was an actual subtle Easter egg that like if you know you know that I I really appreciated in the movie. I thought that was well done. I love that. Yeah, Craig Gillespie did a good job with this movie. Yeah, I mean, that as the director, he did a very good job, and it he clearly cared about it, and so you know it all it all came out. Also, look up Tulula Bankhead. She's great. Like she's if, great. Yeah, yeah she she's really awesome. like yeah. Oh, you want to talk about classic Hollywood? Yeah, she's like and the Tulula. She's the unfamous Betty Davis, basically. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. All right. Did, did we miss we anything? Is there anything else? We're good? All right. I mean, you know, I could, I, I could talk about the fashion for like another two hours. I feel like that's yeah. another podcast. Much, yeah. much like Joel and I could talk about the Norm MacDonald jokes from Dirty Work for another two hours. <laughs> yeah. We probably... Uh, no, Sophie, thank you so much for doing this episode. Uh, it's been great. I almost think that the only actual revenge you could get is to pick the worst movie possible to make us watch. Maybe that is the love guru. And then you have nothing to do with it. You just know that we watched it. Yeah, I'll have to make you guys do that on your own without me and not mention me so that nobody feels like I'm... <laughs> Although, didn't that movie... Oh, no, like, they, totally... they need to know that you're getting your revenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to know I want that... it to be clear. They need to know that we know how badly we hurt you. <laughs> yeah, we're still oh, sorry. I still... It I haunts me. That. Yeah. <sighs> I will just uh, say, but, in, okay. in our defense... That when I asked you to do that movie and like when we we set it up, I had not seen it yet. And that movie was still so much worse than I expected it to be. So, <laughs> so much worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so bad. Um, so, Sophie, if people want to find out more about you, how can they do that? They can find me on Instagram at Sophie Strauss Styling or at my website, www.sophiestraussstyling.com. I'm a stylist for regular people, which means that I work with all people, all ages, genders, sizes, anything uh, from anything to like cleaning out your closet to, you know, a red carpet event. So if you are interested in that kind of stuff, then check me out. Also, if you have thoughts on Friday Night Lights, it's a good time yes, to be following you. It's a good time to follow me. Yeah, yeah. I just finished watching Gilmore Girls for the first time and people really enjoyed uh, the sort of live 
the live Instagram tweeting of that. And so I've moved on to Friday Night Lights, which I'm also watching for the first time. Yeah. So it's definitely a great follow. Yeah, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I mean, cool heads, big hearts can't lose. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but no, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hey guys, it's Sean. And Carter. From Potato. Salad. Marmalade. Aid. 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 Potato Aid. Salad Marmalade. Another podcast here on the Peak Sloth Network. Check it out. <laughs>